0: good morning. Glad you guys are here. For those of you who don't know, my name's Sean. I am uh, one of the pastors here, and uh, we are going to be starting a short three-week series. That's short for us. We've been working through the book of Matthew for two years now. So a short three-week series uh, on, the pro- on the story of the prodigal son. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke 15. Luke 15. Seems like an appropriate text for Christmas. We are two weeks away from Christmas. Didn't know that. 17 days till Christmas. I hope you started shopping. Uh, we, um, we do this thing here called Rooted. And uh, if you haven't heard of it, it's probably because this is probably one of your first Sundays here. Because we talk about Rooted, I've talked about Rooted basically every Sunday for the last two and a half years. And uh, Rooted is this incredible thing. We say Rooted is the answer to your questions. Whatever your question is about getting connected, finding a place to serve, growing your faith, whatever it is, Rooted is where we would point you. It's a 10 week thing. In fact, we're gonna talk about at the end of service, you can get signed up. January 12th uh, is when it starts and you get yourself signed up and you'll be glad that you did. But week one at Rooted, week one at Rooted, we get everyone together who's doing Rooted and we all sit there and and we kind of set the scene for what the next 10 weeks are gonna look like. And one of the things that I say when we're setting the scene, is um, uh, many of us what we wrestle with in our faith is not the intellectual issues of our faith, it's who we believe God is. That at the root of our struggles with apathy, that at the root of our struggles with our sin, in the way that we deal with sin, and the way that we deal with one another, when we deal with our spouses, with ourselves, is the way we view God. And so over those 10 weeks, we're going to try and be honest with ourselves about how we view God, and we're going to try and correct that. We're going we're to use a prayer experience. We're going to use a time of confession. We're going to use uh, serving one another. We're going to use um, uh, um, these words of encouragement. We're going to use m- talks about money. We're going to use all these different elements of our faith to try and realign our view of God to the Bible. And so today, in just a, a little bit, I, I want to try and use the, prodigal st- the story of the prodigal son to help realign your view of God. Because you see, even if you take out your Bible, if you've got a Bible, if you don't, not a big deal, but if you, if you take out a Bible, it probably has a heading at, the, at Luke 15, verse 11, that says, the prodigal son. And even just kind of realigning your view of who God is and what God's doing, if you don't know, um, that's not actually original to the text, okay? Editors added those things, they added verse marking and chapters so that we could better navigate through the Bible. That phrase, the prodigal son, Jesus, doesn't say, now, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to tell you a story, and we're going to call it from here on out, we're going to call the story, the prodigal son. Doesn't say that. And in fact, our misunderstanding of this story is so intense. Get this. Our misunderstanding story is so intense, we have redefined a word in the English language to fit our misunderstanding of this story. <laughs> it's that word. The prodigal son. The first problem with that title, we're gonna talk about the story for three weeks, but the first problem about that the first problem with that title is the story's not about the son. In fact, it's not about either of the sons. The character, the main character that Jesus is trying to teach about is the character of the father. So the fact that we define the story, as the title of the story as the prodigal son already begins us with our eyes focused on the wrong person. Because the story isn't about a son. It's about the father. Secondly, if I was to ask you, what does the word prodigal mean, I would imagine that you would say something to this effect. You would say that prodigal means something like lost or wayward, right? That if, if we had a quiz and we put, you know, like little uh, multiple choices up here and I put lost or wayward, you know, dumb or broke, Right? And I said, what, is the, what does prodigal mean? You would say prodigal means lost or wayward. Sean, haven't you read the story of the prodigal son? It's right there. He was lost and wayward. He wandered away. The crazy thing is that we have, we have by our misuse of the word prodigal, we've actually redefined an English word. Because you see, if you look up, if you look up today in a dictionary, in a Merriam-Webster's dictionary, for those of you who are too young to know, it's this book, they're about this thick, and you open it up and it has pages that you have to flip through, not like Facebook pages, but like pieces of paper, right? We take trees, we cut them up, we mash them up, and we spread them out, and then we print ink on them, and they're alphabetical, right? And then there's a bunch of numbers and abbreviations after each word that nobody actually knows what they mean, and then there's the definition and the Merriam-Webster's definition will say prodigal means reckless and extravagant. Now you can see how that, that definition fits the story. When, when editors started to put that title, The Prodigal Son, on over 100 years ago, that makes sense because the younger son is reckless and extravagant. If you don't know the story... The younger son, there's two sons, the younger son comes to his dad and he says, dad, I want my inheritance, which if you know culturally, he could have literally just had his son killed for the amount of dishonor that that was, but he didn't. He, he, he cashes out, which is a slow, long process because in their culture, they don't have banks. It's not stored up in a 401k. It's property and stuff. So he's got to sell property and sell cattle and slow process. And he would take what would end up being a third of everything that he owned. Because in Jewish culture, the first son um, got two shares and then every other son got one share. And I hope my parents are taking notes. The oldest son, it's in the Bible, gets two shares and then everybody else gets one share. So he would get a third because he's got an older brother who gets two thirds and he'd get a third. And his dad cashes everything out and he gives it to him. And he runs away, and he burns it all on what we might call reckless living. But between those two combinations, we have drastically misunderstood what this parable is even about. Because you see, this parable, as Timothy Keller would say, this parable might be better titled the prodigal God. Because this whole story is, in fact, about the reckless generosity of our Father. So if you have your Bibles, Luke 15. Luke 15. It says this. In verse, we'll start in verse 11. It says this. And he said, a man, he was Jesus, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father... Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he, being the father, divided his wealth between them. So he divided his wealth between them. His son comes and asks. His son comes and asks for one of the most dishonoring things that he can. His son basically looks at his dad and says that you would be more value to me if you were dead. And the son, the father, gives the son what he desires. You see, the first thing that I, I want you to know about God that the parable is trying to tell us is that God will give us what we ask for. A, a lot of times when we think about, when we talk about the wrath of God, weren't you excited you came to his church on a day we could talk about the wrath of God? You're like, yes! Right? The wrath of God. A lot of times when we think about the wrath we think about, like, lightning bolts and earthquake and, and, and horrible natural disasters, which sometimes have happened. But did you know that Roman, the book of Romans actually paints a very different picture of the wrath of God? Romans 1, you don't have to turn there, but I'll, I'll read it for you. You can turn there if you don't believe me, but we got a whole different set of problems if you don't believe me. Romans 1, verse 18, it says this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Okay? The wrath of God is revealed. Is revealed. And it says this in verse 24. Because the wrath of God is revealed, it says, therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity. That God gave them over the most destructive form of the wrath of God you can experience is for God to let you have what you want. For you to say, I want to do it my own way. I want to figure it out. I want to blaze my own trail. I want to define for myself what is good and what is healthy and what is right. And for God to say, sure, is the greatest wrath of God. Because we believe that Scripture teaches that he is the one who gives us breath and gives us life. And when we turn to him, just as the younger son did, and say, you would be better to me if you were dead, and I want nothing of you, then and, and when he says, okay, that there is only if the one who gives us life We cast him away from us. We tell him to leave. We tell him we want nothing to be part of him, that we want nothing of him in our life, that when the one who gives life departs, so does life itself. And it's no surprise that the younger son finds exactly what a book in the Old Testament, a book of Ecclesiastes, talks about, that apart from God, apart from the life-giving breath of God, there's nothing. It's all like shiny trash, My wife and I have been having this conversation about our our kids and their toys, and the reality is that whether it's you're buying it for Christmas or buying it for their birthday or buying it just because many of the things we buy are just garage sale items for next summer. And that when we say to God, I want nothing of you, the worst, most destructive, most painful demonstration of God's wrath that he could give us is to give us what we want. But we see it in the other direction too. Jesus says this He says, Ask, seek, knock. He says, If you knock, the door will be open. If you seek, that you'll find. That when we come before our Father, that the God that we worship, the God that we believe, that he will give us what we desire. If we want to draw in near to him, if you this morning are coming here because you want to experience more, because you want to know who he is and, and power as Scripture says, the power of resurrection, that you want to know forgiveness and restoration and redemption and peace, that when you lean into him, that we worship and serve a God who will give you what you desire. So the first thing that we need to know about the God that Jesus presents in this story is he's a God, a father who gives his children what they want. Second is this, look down at verse 20. Look down at verse 20, it says this. So he got up and came to his father. Now this is the younger son, he went off, burned all of his stuff, didn't literally burn it, but you know, went crazy with it, lost all of his stuff, realized that his dad's servants are better Off than he is, so he's gonna come back and plead his way into the house. But it says this: But while he was still a long ways off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. It's like when you read that verse, it's like Luke is adding on to the verse, adding on to the sentence, just One statement, one more statement, one more statement, because he wants you to know how desperately the Father loves his son. Because wouldn't it have been sufficient to say, like, we could have just paused this, this sentence. I mean, look at all the the little phrases he uses just to make emphasis on how much the father loves and has been waiting for his son. It says, so he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, the father's waiting. While the father's still a long ways off, he sees him. You only see things that are long ways off because you're looking for him. I don't know if you uh, heard a couple weeks ago, you guys see like on Facebook and on the news and stuff like that, did you guys see about the fireball out in Fall City, right? If you didn't see, some guy caught some pictures and there was this, literally it's a fireball, like everything you imagine from from like an action uh, Avengers film, just a fireball fi- falling from the heavens, right? Middle of day. And uh, it looked like they thought that it was an airplane crashing, just fully consumed in flames, just the most epic train plane wreckage ever, right? And so they sent re, uh, rescue teams out and they sent helicopters out and all this kind of stuff going to look for the wreckage of this of this plane. And they, they couldn't find anything. And I don't know who made phone calls to who or how that all happened, but eventually it got around to OMSI and these pictures got around to OMSI and some scientists looked at them and they went, oh, that, that's a meteor. It's a meteor. Probably when it came into our atmosphere, it was about the size of a Volkswagen bug. But by the time it hit Fall City, it's probably about the size of a softball, and, and it just has such intensity and heat, it creates this big, huge flame. And, and the guy, when he was being interviewed, the scientist from OMSI, he said, uh, you'll, you'll never find it. I mean, just by a fluke, you might find it, but um, it'll have hit out there, and it'll be so small that you won't even know, and it's just out in the woods somewhere. And, and then, then an interesting thing caught me. He said this. He said, this happens thousands of times a day all around the world but most people never see it because they're simply not watching. But the father was. It could have just been another silhouette walking over the horizon, but every time a new silhouette came over the horizon, the father was watching. He was waiting with expectation. The story seems to lead, and you put all the timelines together, that the son was probably gone for months, if not years, and every day the father would come out and he would watch. He'd watch with that hawkish eye across the horizon. Maybe, maybe that's him. Maybe that's him. And the father was waiting, and he was watching, and that would have been sufficient enough. But he goes on. He felt compassion for him. We're going to look at that word in a minute. But then it says, and he ran right? And he could have put a period there. He said, he could have said, he was watching for him and he saw him and he felt compassion and he ran to him. And we would have gone, oh, he must love his son. Like he's excited. His son's back. He ran to him. Because if you understand the cultural implications of an old man running, uh, it, it was, it didn't happen, right? Because old men in their culture were the most revered, most respected, most honored. And so old men ran nowhere because everybody else waited for them. They would walk, but everybody else could hurry, but everyone would wait for them because they were the object of honor in any group. But he runs to him. He puts aside his pride and his own honor and his own self-respect, and he runs. And that would have been enough of Luke recording the words of Jesus to emphasize that, that the Father sees him and he's waiting, he's excited. But he does nothing in there. While he's still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him. And that could have been enough. We could have just stopped there. That he ran and he embraced him. And it says something about the heart of the father that he doesn't just run to him and he doesn't just stand in front of him and say, Where have you been, son? Well, what have you done with the money that I invested in you? I'm sure that you put it in rightful investments and you've earned a, a wage off of the money that you've invested in the time that you've been gone. Explain to me, son, all the ways that you've rebelled against me and all the sins and all, and all the rejection you've had of, of my honor. But he doesn't. He runs to him. And he embraces him. And Luke continues to compound us understanding the heart of the Father, that he sees him, he's waiting for him, he's watching for him, and then he runs to him, and then he embraces him. I mean, is there a more intimate word to describe a reunion than an embrace? He embraces him. He doesn't just hug him. He didn't just like do the do, do the dude pat thing, right? You know how to do the dude thing. You g- grab a hand, then you roll the thumb over, and then you reach around with the free hand and you pat on the back twice, right? It, you have to pat because if you linger, then it gets awkward, okay? So you just pat and then you release and that's the dude hug, right? He doesn't do that to his son. He runs and he embraces him. But then it goes on. He runs and he embraces him and he kisses him like Luke's trying to tell us something. It's like like Jesus is trying to tell us something about the heart of the Father. That when he sees his son, as soon as his son turns back towards him, he runs and abandons every inch of self-respect and pride to demonstrate the fullness of his love for his son who's come back. You see, the Father waited with anticipation for a son, that we serve a God who this morning is waiting for you with anticipation. There's a word in the middle of this whole thing. It says that He felt compassion for him. In the Greek, it, it's not. Um, sometimes we use the word compassion interchangeably with pity, right? It's not like, oh, He felt so bad for a son. I better run to him because he might have a medical emergency. It's a different word. It's a word that, that demonstrates just this incredible angst of loss and, and heartache and pain deep inside, deep inside. You, you may have heard this, um, but in ancient Near East culture, the seat of the emotions wasn't the heart. It was the bowels, right? Because isn't that where you feel things? Like when you really deeply feel something, you feel it here. If you feel it here, call 911, okay? That's a heart attack, Okay? And then if you feel it down your arm, like that's a heart attack. but you, when you feel things, you feel it here. You feel it here. And, and he felt with such a depthness of love and compassion for his son that he ran to him. This word Paul, uh, Luke only uses three times, and one of them comes in chapter seven. Jesus sees a funeral procession, and there's an only son of a mother who's died. It says the mourners are coming across, and they're mourning, and they're wailing, and they're heartbroken. And this this woman who's burying her son, that she has this. If you've ever had to bury a child, I've been told that losing a child is um, psychologically one of the most painful emotional experiences a human being will ever endure. And and Jesus says that when the father saw his son, that he feels so deeply for him, that something inside of him feels like it's just being severed in two, and he can't do anything but run to his child. The father we serve, the father that we worship, is a God who loves you so desperately that the the moment your foot towards, towards home, he runs after you to embrace you. That he feels so deeply for you see, the father that Jesus shares with us in this story is a father who gives his children what they want, a father who waits with anticipation for his return, and third, he's a father who is quick to forgive. Look at this. Look in verse 22. Verse 21 is the the son starts his speech, which he already practiced. He starts the speech to try and convince the father that he should earn his way back into the household. But it says this. This this is like the best word of the whole passage, right? The whole story culminates on this one word right here. The, The son's pleading with the father, if you'll let me work as a hired hand, and then he says this, but. That ends it all right there. But. But the father. The son comes pleading and begging that he might work his way back into the good graces of his son, into his father. But scripture says, but the father. It's right there, it's done. He can't can't earn his way back in. He can't earn the favor of his father. He can't earn the acceptance. He can't repay the debt. He can't repay what he's dishonored his father in. But the father. Verse twenty-two. But the father said to his slaves, "Quickly, quickly, bring out the best robes and put it on him, and put it on his a, a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill. it. Let us eat and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. And they began that very hour to celebrate. They began to celebrate quickly." God's not waiting for you to come with some fanciful, long, beautiful prayer listing all of all of the ways that you've rebelled, or all the ways that you're gonna be a better person, or all the commitments you've made to discipline yourself better and and to grow in in your faith or 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 in your Christianness or whatever. But when we come to the Father, he forgives quickly that when we come before the Father, it says this in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, that he is faithful to forgive, period. That's it. If we confess, if we confess Jesus as Lord, if we confess our sins, he is quick to forgive, the father doesn't wait in front of the son for him to earn penance to come back into the house. He doesn't say to his son, well, son, I really loved. you. I'm so glad you're here. So, um, so if for six months, if you could kind of hang out in the servant's quarters, and if you do good time, we'll, maybe we'll cut that down to four. If you work really hard, you get up really early, and, and, and if, you, if you get up really early and you pray and you read your Bible for four months in a row, we'll cut two months off of it, and then you can come back into my house and you can be called my son he embraces him he says now quickly run do it now and he takes all these symbols that are symbols of what it means to be a son in the family a child in the family and he puts them on him now quickly that we worship and serve a god a father who is quick to forgive the last thing i want you to see is in verse 28 If you don't know the story, the story kind of pivots because they celebrate, and that'd be a great way for the story to end. But remember, the story's not about the younger son. The younger son's come home now. He's been welcomed back in. The story's about the father. And the father has two sons, and only one of them's actually at the party. The other one's in the field. And he's actually doing what he should be doing. He's out in the field working, and he hears this party going on. Right? Which if you have a party that you can hear in a field, like that is an awesome party. You're probably going to hear from the police as well, but that's an awesome party. And so the the older son asks the servant, he says, you know, hey, what's going on? He says, well, your brother's come back. And, And then the older son pouts and he sulks in the field, says, I'm not going in, I'm not going in, I'm not going in. But it says this in verse 28. But he, being the older son, became angry and was not willing to go in, and his father came out to him, and began pleading with him. Even in his pouting, even in his arrogance, even in his haughtiness, in his sulking, the father came out to him. The father came after him. The word there for pleading um, is actually uh, um, the, the, the verb version of a noun in Greek that was to to describe a legal advocate. It's actually other places it uses it to speak about the Holy Spirit, a legal advocate. So, so, So think about this. What this text says is that the Father goes out to him and begins to fight for him with him. That he began to plead. He began to fight for his good with Him, with him, with the one who is sulking, the one who is pouting, the father comes out and he pleads with him for his good, not for the father's good, not for the father's good. The father's been dishonored again. His son won't come to his party. The son has dishonored his name and yet the father goes out to him and he pleads for the good of the older son. He pleads on his behalf. You see, we have a father who will give you what you want. We have a father who is waiting expectantly for your return. We have a father who is quick to forgive. And we have a father who is coming after you, who's fighting for you on your behalf. Even even when you choose not to, he's fighting for you. I mean, that's, that's the whole message of the gospel. That's the message of Christmas. It says it this way. It says this in Scripture. It says, while we were yet sinners, while we were enemies in our minds before God, Christ died. While we were lost and alone and in darkness, God sent his son. It's the good news of Christmas. That's what we celebrate. That while we sat in a field and sulked, the Father came after. He's coming after you. I believe with every bone in my body that you are not in this room by accident. But you are in this room because there's a Father who desperately loves you, and He's after you. He's coming after your soul. There's a war for your soul, and He is fighting for you even when you're uninterested and unwilling to fight for yourself. Romans 5 verse 8, this is how he showed his love, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I said in Rooted that we start week one talking about our view of God, and I think it's really one of the most powerful things about Rooted is to come to grips with how we view God and then to look and see if that's actually the God that Scripture represents, that Scripture teaches about, that Jesus talks about. Because you see, you may be in this room, and you may worship or serve a God that doesn't do these things, who isn't quick to forgive, who isn't waiting expectantly for the lost and wandering child, who hasn't come after his children. You, You may worship and serve but I have to tell you this that that God is not the God of this book that that God is not the God that Jesus pointed to that that God is not the God that Luke wrote about, that Paul wrote about, that Peter wrote about, that's not the God that we see in the Bible so this morning maybe this morning God would be so merciful and kind to us that we might see God anew as this loving Father of grace and mercy who sees you even distantly on the horizon, who chases, who runs to you to embrace you, who will not listen to your your arguments about how you will work your way back into his favor, who will not listen, but who's given his life, this God who's given himself that you might be called a son or a daughter.